Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi. In today's segment, what we want to cover is the beginning of the peace process with the Palestinians. Over the course of our look at Israel's history, we've talked about the peace process with Egypt. We've talked about other attempts at peace with other neighboring Arab states. But at the point in history that we're at now, we're really going to start to get to the nitty gritty of Israel's relationship with the Palestinians. That really begins to happen in the 1990s, but we're going to back up a little bit just to make the story come up to date. Yasser Arafat founds the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1964. We talked about how that happens before the occupation, so it's important to remember that the PLO, which was committed to Israel's destruction, develops before there is even an occupation. We've talked about that a couple of times, but it's important to mention it once again. And in 1974, in November 1974, Arafat is actually asked and invited to address the General Assembly of the United Nations, which is a pretty extraordinary thing for a man who's known throughout the world as a terrorist. And he comes and gives a very famous speech at the UN, which is called the Olive Branch and Guns Speech. It's called the Olive Branch Speech because he talked about how he was reaching out an olive branch to the Israelis and it was time to make peace and so on and so forth. But what everybody who was present noticed was that on his belt, Arafat actually had an empty pistol holder, a, a holster on his belt. He had come apparently to the UN with a gun, obviously he couldn't bring the gun into the UN itself, but he kept the holster on. And everyone understood that that was actually therefore a double-edged message. On one hand, he's saying with his words, I'm offering you an olive branch, but it's also a threat that either you accept the olive branch on my terms or the gun that you can see and not see at the same time uh, may become much more central. So it was in many respects kind of a, a, a dark beginning to this long process, which made Israelis very nervous. The Israelis had reason to be nervous a year later in the UN once again, when the United Nations voted on a resolution, which back in the day was considered huge news, but a lot of people don't recall it anymore today. It was a resolution called the Zionism is Racism Resolution. And basically it was a resolution that the General Assembly passed which said essentially Zionism is racism. Obviously there was a lot more detail to it, but that is the essential message of the resolution that they passed. Uh, it's not surprising who voted for it, right? I mean, all of the Arab countries voted for it. Many of the countries that were dependent on the Arabs or near them uh, voted for it. Uh, there are a few surprises in terms of who voted for it. Uh, India voted for it, Brazil voted for it, the USSR, which in 1948, had voted to create, uh, voted to create Israel in 47, actually. Yugoslavia uh, voted for it. But what's really interesting is who abstained? Who refused to raise their hands and say, no, Zionism is not racism. There were a lot of countries that abstained. I'll just give you three. The United States, England, and Canada. And when those three countries in November of 1975 
refuse to vote against the resolution, refuse to stand at Israel's side and say, no, Zionism is not racism, Israel begins to understand that no matter what anyone is going to say in the international community, it's really going to be pretty much alone if it ever needs people. Also important to mention very, very quickly that on both sides of the divide, both on the Muslim side and on the Jewish side, the world of religion is changing. The Muslim world is becoming increasingly religious, very often fundamentalist. We'll see the outgrowth of that many years later with ISIS and so forth. Uh, but in Israel also, we don't have anything as extreme as ISIS, obviously, but you do have a kind of a deepening of a religious sensibility inside Israel. So that what was once really a territorial dispute is now increasingly becoming a religious dispute, which makes it, of course, much more difficult to untangle. Where are the Palestinians during this whole period, during the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and so forth? Uh, their condition economically actually is improving a little bit. Between 1967, when Israel captures the Gaza Strip from Egypt in the Six-Day War, until the 1980s, uh, the Gaza GDP went up from $80 a person to $1,700 a person. So there's a huge improvement in their economic lot. Uh, in 1967, when Israel takes Gaza, 18% of the homes are connected to the electric grid. Uh, and very, very quickly, Israel puts Gaza on its own electric grid and 89% of the homes are on the grid. So in a lot of ways, the condition economically of Arabs, both in Gaza and in the West Bank as well, improves very significantly. But we should not ignore the fact that poverty in Gaza is still rife. Uh, and things are also pretty problematic in the West Bank, though they're not quite as bad as they are in Gaza. So we have Arafat coming to the UN in 74, 75, the UN votes that Zionism is racism. And then in 1988, we're leaping forward ahead a, de a decade or so, Hamas is created. And Hamas, which now rules Gaza in 2020, has a very smart way of going about things. They do it very similarly to the way that Hezbollah works in southern Lebanon which is that they are not simply a military organization. They're a military organization, but also a social services organization. So they provide food and they provide health services and they provide education. And they have obviously a, a very extreme military wing. But what the brilliant move about providing social services does is that it actually buys the loyalty of the local population. Because without Hamas, who's gonna educate our kids? Without Hamas, who's gonna provide doctors and so forth? And Hamas, by the way, is explicit that its purpose is not to get free from Israel in the Gaza Strip. It's, they are explicit to this very day, by the way, that their purpose is to destroy the state of Israel. There can be no Zionist entity, as they call it, anywhere between the river and the sea, meaning the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, in July of 1988, Jordan, from which Israel had captured the West Bank in the Six-Day War, says, we don't want it back. In other words, they renounce any claim to the West Bank, and now the Palestinians recognize they're in no man's land. Jordan doesn't want them back. They are controlled by Israel, but don't really want to be controlled by Israel. And this is just basically heating up more and more and more. Now, when does the first Intifada, as it's commonly called, begin? It begins really at the very, very end of 1987. The, the region is heating up, there's no question. Tensions are rising on both sides. Uh, but in December 1987, an Israeli truck driver 
accidentally runs over four Arab workers in the Gaza Strip. It was clearly an accident. There's really no question anymore today. It was debated back in the day, but it was very clear. It was just a horrible traffic accident and four Palestinians were killed. Uh, but that unleashed years and years and years of frustration and anger on the part of Palestinians. And in this uprising, intifada basically means in Arabic an uprising, uh, there are massive protests, rocks being thrown at soldiers, Molotov cocktails being thrown at IDF soldiers. It's very important to point out that for the most part, this intifada, this uprising, is directed at Israel's security services. It is not directed at Israeli civilians. There's some exceptions to that, but by and large, this is a mass wave of protest against Israel's presence in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Israel is taken completely by surprise. It's, it's held the West Bank and Gaza now for 20 years. There really hasn't been a problem as far as Israel was concerned, rather blindly on Israel's part, quite obviously. Uh, and it responds by basically putting 80,000 soldiers on that particular issue. And what you have, of course, as CNN and other channels, you know, begin to film what's happening, you have young Palestinian kids, 13 years old, 14 years old, throwing rocks at soldiers. And the soldiers, of course, have helmets and bulletproof vests and, you know, M16s or Uzis back in the day. Uh, and it just looks terrible in terms of the graphics. It just looks really terrible on international TV to see these young, essentially unarmed, even though Molotov cocktails can be very dangerous, essentially unarmed young Palestinian kids against very heavily armed Israeli soldiers. And this really begins to shape the opinion in the world. And Israel may or may not be winning on the field in terms of shutting down the Intifada, but it is 100% losing in the court of international opinion. And slowly but surely there emerges this idea in the international community, this has got to stop. We have to begin to negotiate an end to Israel's control of the West Bank. There are obviously divisions inside Israel. There are hard right people who say never. There are moderate people who say, yeah, we want out of the West Bank, but not in response to this, because then we'll just convince them that violence works. And there are people on the left who say, yeah, we should have done this a long time ago. Uh, let's actually have this conversation. There are two major conferences that take place. One takes place in Madrid uh, in November of 1991. Madrid doesn't really accomplish very much of anything, except the Israelis do insist that if there's gonna be any negotiation whatsoever, the UN has to undo that Zionism is racism uh, resolution, which it does. It, it undoes it shortly thereafter. But it's, you know, kind of when you separate kids in a fight, you know, you say to them, I need you to apologize to him. And they say, okay, I'm sorry. I mean, it's very clear they're not sorry. And it's very clear that public opinion in the United Nations had not really changed. It's just that they understood that Israel was not going to negotiate with anybody unless the Zionism is racism resolution was revoked. So Madrid kind of gets it started, but doesn't really change much. Uh, what follows, of course, is the Oslo Accords of 1993. Now, it's not going to surprise anyone either that the negotiation process in Oslo is incredibly painstaking and very fraught and very complex. And it's also not going to surprise anyone uh, that in a setting like this, we really can't talk about all of the nitty gritty of what Oslo involved and who was negotiating and who participated and who didn't participate, etc., etc. Let's just jump right away to the final outcome of Oslo. What did Oslo essentially do? In contradistinction to what many people think, Oslo did not create a Palestinian state. 
Oslo created the Palestinian Authority, which still exists to this day, which uh, Mahmoud Abbas currently runs. Yasser Arafat ran it first, and then Mahmoud Abbas now runs it. And the Palestinian Authority was meant to be the local democratic, we'll come back to that in a minute, democratic authority that would basically take, become the government of the Muslims, the Arabs on the West Bank, to a certain extent the Gaza Strip, but that's a separate issue. And the West Bank gets divided into three areas, areas A, B, and C. Area A is an Arab area, which is going to be under completely under the PA control. Area B is going to be shared security control of Israel and the Palestinian Authority. And Area C, which is the areas that are populated almost entirely by Jews, will be exclusively under Israeli control. And the idea is that this will be the beginnings of the Palestinians beginning to build what the Jews had built in the Yeshuv way, way back when. The beginnings of democratic functioning and educational systems and tax systems and so on and so forth. And it was clearly understood by all parties that the assumption was that this would eventually lead to Palestinian statehood. Uh, but of course, it was not said in the agreements exactly how and when that would happen. Israel was expected to pull out of certain major areas according to a certain timetable. We'll come back to that again in a second. This is an extremely complicated and very controversial move on both sides. In Israel, there is a right wing which is totally opposed to the Oslo Accords. The right wing is composed of several different parts. Let's just mention two of them. Uh, one of them is religious. Basically, God gave us this land. Uh, it's kind of what Rabbi Cook said in one of our previous episodes right before 1967. Uh, how can you divide up this land? It's not for you to do it. We're opposed to Oslo because it's giving up land that we're supposed to have. Uh, completely illegitimate by its very definition. There's also a, a right wing flank which is motivated not by religious ideology, even if some of those people were religious. Uh, but they just say, this is a ridiculous idea security-wise. I mean, are you going to trust Yasser Arafat, the terrorist, to now build a democratic civilian apparatus? That's nuts. Uh, and it becomes a very, very, very divisive issue, issue, issue inside Israel. Um, we'll come back to how horribly that ends. Uh, so, but Oslo was passed in 1993. Uh, very divided and so forth. In May 1994, a year later, Israel actually does begin to pull out of the areas that it was supposed to pull out of. It pulls out of Jericho and almost all of the Gaza Strip, and then it pulls out of some of the larger cities. And then at the end of 1994, in October, Israel and Jordan sign a peace treaty. So now Israel has peace formally with two of its Arab neighbors, with Egypt under Begin, uh, and now in 1994 under Rabin, with King Hussein. The only parenthetical thing that's worth mentioning here is that Egypt, uh, so Egypt and Israel ended up negotiating their deal separately without American involvement. Even though Carter had been involved at a certain point, at the end of the negotiation was done between Begin and Sadat. And here too, Israel and Jordan negotiated directly without any American involvement. The Americans were actually annoyed to a certain extent that this all went forward without them. But it reminded a lot of people of this, that when the two parties, any two parties, are going to make a deal, it's because the two parties want to sit down and make a deal, and foreign involvement, whether it's the European Union or the United States or anybody else, may be more problematic uh, than people imagine. But while Israel is pulling out of Jericho and other major cities, and Israel signing a peace treaty with Jordan in 1994, there is all of a sudden a huge explosion of terrorism on the part of the West Bank, Hamas, 
and some in Gaza as well. There are more people killed between 1994 and 1996 in Israel, Jews we're talking about, that had ever before been killed in that amount of time, leaving wars aside, obviously. Just to give you an idea, let's just take a week and a half from uh, 1996 towards the end of this period. On February 25th, 1996, Hamas bombs uh, the Ashkelon bus station, uh, killing one person. The very same day, Hamas bombs the number 18 bus in Jerusalem, killing 26 people, and Hamas claims responsibility, makes no pretense that it didn't do it. About 10 days later, on March 3rd, Hamas bombs the num number 18 bus in Jerusalem again with a suicide bomber, this time killing 19 people. And then the next day in Dizagoff Center in Tel Aviv, Hamas sets off another suicide bomber, 13 people dead. The numbers are incredibly high. Israelis feel unbelievably unprotected. The army seems unable to stop the infiltration of these suicide bombers into Israel. And Arafat, who is expected to denounce this, denounces it with a wink. He says, yes, no, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. He says it in English. He doesn't say it in Arabic. And it's very clear to people who understand that actually not only is Arafat not denouncing it, he's doing nothing really serious to try to stop it. Now, to be fair, it's also important to understand that it was not only the Arabs who committed terrorism. There were, in one major case, really, a, a terrible episode of Israeli terrorism in February 1994, uh, in Hebron, uh, Baruch Goldstein, who is an Israeli a doctor, uh, goes into the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron, at where Arabs also worship, and takes, a, takes a, an automatic weapon and guns down in pure cold blood uh, 29 Muslim worshippers, kills them. He's immediately killed by the crowd, understandably. Uh, but the problem with what Goldstein did, aside from the horrible moral banality of the whole thing, uh, with the horrible dimension of, of Goldstein was not only the murder that he committed, but that it enabled people to say, oh, you see, there's a kind of an equivalence here. The Muslims commit terrorism and the Jews commit terrorism. It's a bunch of crazies on both sides. And while what Goldstein did was totally unforgivable and morally reprehensible, uh, it's important to understand and to be honest that Goldstein in no way represented the position of the Israeli government. Had he survived the attack, he would have been convicted. Uh, but he's killed, he's killed by the people in the tomb. Uh, but it's just important to not allow that moral equivalency to go completely derailed. Uh, Arafat was allowing Hamas and his own men in Fatah to carry out these terrorist bombings. The Israeli government obviously had no hand in what Baruch Goldstein did, but it's clear that the region is a tinderbox. And Israel is also a tinderbox because in light of the rising terrorism, and in light of the increasing vitriol, especially on the part of Israel's right, there is a real sense in Israel that this is getting out of hand. We are talking about each other in ways that we should not be talking about each other. And we are talking about each other as being traitors. And when you call somebody a traitor, you're doing something very dangerous. In, in Jewish law, the term rodef, which means traitor or, a, or a pursuer or something, the punishment for that is death. Uh, and therefore, the vitriol that was taking over Israel uh, was really, really all-consuming. And Yitzhak Rabin, who is the prime minister there, contributes to it in a small way. He actually says at a certain point, I can't be the prime minister of everybody. I promised certain people that I wasn't going to pull out of this area, but what am I going to do? I can't represent everybody. And he does it with a kind of a shrug uh, that enrages people. 
And as we all know, tragically, uh, at the beginning of November 1995, Yitzhak Rabin leaving a huge peace rally in Tel Aviv is killed by Yigal Amir. He's assassinated. Uh, the first real major political assassination in Israel's history once it became a state. Thankfully, so far, the only one. Uh, but that, of course, sets the country completely, it makes the country completely beside itself. Uh, for those of you who've seen videos, and you can find them on YouTube, Israeli youth, teenagers, people in their 20s, lit candles across the country by the tens of thousands. Something about what Yigal Amir had done shocked Israel back to its senses. And people wondered, have we really started to come completely apart? Are we really that unglued? Do we really hate each other that much over the question of how and whether to make peace with the Palestinians that we're going to now kill our prime ministers? And of course, this isn't any old prime minister. This is Yitzhak Rabin, who had liberated Jerusalem in 1948. This is Yitzhak Rabin, who had been in the Palmach in the pre-state era. This was Yitzhak Rabin, who was the person who was shaking Yasser Arafat's hand on the White House lawn in 1993. This was a person of gigantic status in Israel, and a law student pumps bullets into him, and he dies a very short while later um, in the hospital. There are those people who say, who knew Rabin personally, that he was so exasperated by Palestinian terror that he was actually thinking of pulling out of Oslo before he was assassinated. We don't know if that's true or not. What we do know is that he didn't pull out of Oslo, at least until the time that he was killed, obviously. But we also know that with Rabin's assassination, a bullet is also fired into the peace process. The peace process is not entirely dead yet. We'll talk in a little while about how that happens. But it's really in 1995, in large measure, as a result of Israel's right wings being totally opposed to the peace process and the explosion of Palestinian terror after the signing of Oslo, where the whole region basically becomes combustible and the architect of Oslo and the architect of peace, Yitzhak Rabin, dies. And with him, of course, dies one of the major hopes for peace. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.